Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello there. Um, just before I go into the usual weekly ranty jokey bit uh, that you're used to, I just wanted to say I hope you're doing OK and coping with all of this oddness uh, now that we're all in lockdown. Or maybe you're a heroic key worker that's still going out there and being an absolute champion, saving lives. Or maybe you're one of the dickheads that's in one of those new death cults that seems to have exercising in the local park during a pandemic on their doctrine and has kind of led us all to this. Um, I mean, isn't the cycling contracted by the virus catching? No, who, who the fuck knows? Anyway, look, I'm very unsettled by all of this too. And it doesn't help uh, that as well as shitting myself every time I cough, which I should say isn't a symptom of the coronavirus, uh, just one caused by fear of getting it. Though that would explain the Lee roll hoarding. Um, but as well as that fear, um, as a stand-up comedian, I have lost all my work for the next two possibly three months uh so of all my pals in the industry and many other performers and self-employed people uh what with our jobs being going out and entertaining people and it's understandable that they've closed we can't keep doing that sort of work uh when there are viruses going around um while the government is supposedly meant to be rolling out extra help this week for self-employed um who knows uh if they actually will so in the meantime um why not keep yourself entertained and help us out by checking out the stay at home festival at cosmicshambles.com uh, where they're live streaming gigs and raising money for comedians by doing so. I did one on Sunday night alongside Josie Long, Mark Watson, Johnny and the Baptists and John Luke Roberts and you can watch that again on YouTube if you missed it. Um, there's also hecklethevirus.com from the brilliant Next Up Comedy and they too will be live streaming some of the comedy specials on their platform alongside live interviews with the acts and all sorts of other content. Um, I'm hosting one on Wednesday and Friday this week and then I one of my specials is going to be on next week i think on wednesday at 7 p.m uh if you head to nextupcomedy.com forward slash tin and is great i didn't but that that wasn't my idea to make that url um if you subscribe to their platform through that link you can watch a ton of excellent stand-up specials from loads of acts uh and also my three really really old ones as well and i and those acts will get some money from you doing that um there are loads of great initiatives and streaming gigs going on and i'll be plugging some more things in the admin bit of this show but please please do support those two uh, and enjoy yourself with all the comedy content while you do we may as well laugh our way through these next few 
three very boring weeks. I've got a two-year-old. It's going to be hell. Um, and of course, should you fancy chucking me a quid or two to my uh, Kofi ko-fi.com forward slash bro or joining the patreon.com forward slash bro I mean, it is more appreciated than ever. Uh, what with me having no other work. Um, thank you tons. Um, hope you're safe and well. And now back to the usuals. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that advises and insists on social distancing at all times. What virus? No, I just meant because most people are fucking awful. I'm Tin and Duyeb19, and the Prime Minister and porridge backpack of a man, Boris Johnson, has announced that you can only leave your home for essential reasons. Based on his record, that means including to run away with a younger, more attractive lover. Yes, there are strict new curbs on life in the UK, as everyone is told that they have to stay at home for three weeks, an announcement that had Johnson made it in February when the coronavirus started, and while various storms battered the UK, we'd all have been much happier about it. You can leave your home for medical needs, basic necessities, which I think means you can take a shit outside, or for one form of exercise, which may be running away from the person whose house you've just shat outside of. Shops selling non-essential goods will be shut, meaning that finally the M&M store gets what it fucking deserves, and gatherings in public of more than two people who don't live together are prohibited, meaning if you're really craving human contact, it might be best to get arrested or sent to a detention centre. All social events are allowed except for funerals as, let's face it, at least one person there will already be immune. If you disobey, the police now have the power to arrest you, though I'd argue you could probably cough up an apology and they'd have to back away pretty quickly. Or you might be lucky and get apprehended by one of the 20,000 more police the Conservatives promised in the election, in which case you could just remember they still don't exist and carry on infecting the masses like a dickhead. There is something remarkable about watching the Prime Minister, a man who spent his entire life persuading people that the downright stupid or shitty things he said were jokes or weren't meant to be taken seriously, now fumble around with informing the public how to stay safe, but still announce it like he's written a second speech contradicting it in case it isn't popular. I don't remember the story of the boy who cried wolf, but in this modern day version we're watching in nightly instalments, I'm wondering if it ends with him coughing far too much to warn us of anything. After a weekend of huge gatherings taking place at events like farmers markets, where they just must have had an organic spread to die for, the government said that they are shocked that people weren't taking their advice to self-isolate and blame them for being selfish to ignore it. You know, the same people that were told just a few years back by a senior member of Johnson's cabinet, you know, the one that looks like what's left in a pan after you've scraped scrambled eggs out of it, that they'd had enough of experts. You know, the same people who were told by Johnson merely days ago that they could turn the tide on this virus in just 12 weeks, while only a month before he was too cowardly to visit places actually full of water. The same people who are hearing about the need for enforced social distancing from a parliament full of MPs all packed in close to each other. The same people who've been told by the Queen, aka melted Christopher Walken candle, that we have to work together as one, even though we've all been told to stay separate. Or maybe she meant that we all have to work as her, because she's going to hide, and frankly we're dispensable. These are the same people who've been told that at the end of a meeting last month, the Prime Minister's special advisor and what if a knee was cognizant, Dominic Cummings, allegedly said the strategy for dealing with the virus was herd immunity, protect the economy, and if some pensioners die, then too bad which is an odd thing to say from a man who looks like he'd be taken out by a strong breeze and a party who, if they let a few pensioners die, will mainly be losing their own voter base. 
These are the people who've heard that the Prime Minister said a call out for more ventilators to help those with severe virus systems could be called Operation Last Gasp, which is not only callous but also rubbish when he could have been positive and clever and gone for Operation Lung Inspiration. These are the same people who are supposedly meant to take what the Prime Minister says seriously and yet have been told that if he falls ill, his replacement will be Foreign Secretary and oh no, someone sculpted a Henry Hoover out of cured meat, Dominic Raab, who just last week during a question in the Commons thought Lima, the capital of Peru, was in the Philippines. Sure, not everyone would know where Lima is, but then not everyone is the Foreign Secretary being asked pertinent questions about global issues. There is a high chance that within days we could have an acting Prime Minister that every time he eats a lima bean thinks he's just teleported to Southeast Asia. I'm not at all surprised pubs had to be closed to stop people gathering in them because Boris Johnson only vaguely advised that they should be for several days. How can you be Prime Minister of the UK and not know that the only way you'd put a large chunk of the public off drinking is either by closing pubs or by telling them that all beer is now halal? People won't stop going to pubs while Johnson's septuagenarian dad Stanley, an amalgamation of rejected parts from the Henson studio skip, was on TV insisting that he'll keep going to the pub, meaning that many people knew now that if they had the coronavirus, they might actually have a chance of taking the old bore out. Panto lion costume worn upside down and Weatherspoon's owner Tim Martin was on every station saying there'd been very little transmission of the coronavirus in pubs, which he would have had no way of knowing. Though, let's be fair, most of the morning drinkers in Weatherspoon's probably disinfect the place with their breath far more efficiently than any hand sanitizer. Drastic idiocy requires drastic measures and so of course pubs have had to close just days after schools did, meaning a lot of children's first homeschool lessons would have been trying to problem solve why mum and dad were quite so fucking grumpy. Pupils were told there'd been no exams in May or June, their GCSE or A-level grades now being dependent on what teachers think they would have got, in what is the biggest, most brutal takedown of class clowns seen since episodes of Saved by the Bell. Or, well, since the government announced absolutely no support for the self-employed during this, destroying the comedy industry in a fell swoop. Personally, I think all pupils affected by this school closure should call during clearing and announce they got a COVID and get an immediate placement. Who am I kidding? We'll all be trapped inside for at least 10 years and open university will pretty much accept anyone. Then it was restaurants, clubs, nightclubs, theatres and of course the pubs all told to close too, with some idiots complaining that this is a bitter blow as even the Blitz didn't close our pubs, ignoring that actually it did close quite a few just with bombs. McDonald's announced all its outlets would be closing, proving there was at least one clown taking all this seriously. Glastonbury Festival has been cancelled, proving many to worry that the virus had now advanced to the pyramid stage. And it's just been announced by veteran IOC member and man whose name suggests that he's in the wrong sort of endurance sport, Dick Pound, that the Olympics is being postponed to 2021. And that's a shame, as I think they could have embraced the crisis and had a patient who tested positive for COVID-19 at the start line of every race, no doubt spurring each athlete to reach record times as they try to get away from them as quickly as possible. Financially, the Chancellor and gormless cheese string Rishi Sunak has announced massive measures of financial support for everyone during this, except the self-employed, prompting me to wonder if his parents were murdered by two freelancers when he was a child, and now this is his revenge for he is the VAT man. Those with employment will get 80% of their wage covered, but self-employed have to go on universal credit, because why be told outright that no one gives a fuck about you when you can wait a whole five weeks to find out? There's £330 billion in loans, £20 billion in other aid, a business rates holiday and help for airlines is also being considered because it'd be terrible if once this coronavirus is dealt with that the government weren't able to deport anyone properly anymore. 
And so now here we are. In Parliament, the Health Secretary and Matey Shampoo mascot Matt Hancock delivered the coronavirus bill, a name that makes it sound like a poorly conceived mascot for a public service announcement campaign. The only unrealistic part of that being that the government happily shelled out millions on adverts asking if people were ready for Brexit when no one knew what it was they needed to be ready for but couldn't be asked to spend a few quid telling people to wash their hands before they fornicated in front of country file. The bill could mean that, unless changes are made, the government would have absolute power relating to who the police detain, accessing information and the banning of large public gatherings for over two years. Great news for four-day-old Flemwad Nigel Farage then that any of his marches that he plans will still be able to go ahead. It is, as is always with Johnson's government and likely his sexual technique, nothing at all, then too much, too late. Do we need to stay at home to stop this virus? Yes. Would we have had to if our Prime Minister himself hadn't insisted that he'd gone round a hospital full of coronavirus victims and shook everyone's hands? No, unlikely. And that's what happens when you have a leader who just doesn't think things through and goes whichever way he thinks will just suit him best. Hence now why after all that we've been through, Johnson's really hoping that we suddenly all accept him as strongly in favour of Remain. In other news, depressed hacky sack and former SNP leader Alex Salmond has been cleared of all charges of sexual harassment, with one account reaching the verdict of not proven. Critics still say they believe the accusers, but at least Salmond is being released at a time where if he does now try to have unwanted contact with someone, he might end up in hospital. And in some good news, but this time about a convicted sex offender, collapsed unshaven postule Harvey Weinstein has been tested positive for coronavirus. And it seems like entirely appropriate karma that something threatening has entered him without consent. Hi, elbows, self-isolating quarantine buddies. Uh, how are you coping, if you're coping at all? Um, I sort of am, but I'd be feeling a lot better about being stuck indoors uh, if it was still cold outside. I mean, I know all those storms are windy bastards, but this current endless sunshine while everyone is meant to be staying at home is full on trolling, full on weather trolling. Um, I have been outside a bit in the past week, uh, but, you know, back when we were allowed. Uh, I walked Mini Duyeb, aka my agent, to the empty park a few times and back, which, after having to look at every wall in case Humpty Dumpty was sat on it, and every flower to asking if it's a daffodil, uh, like ask the flower you know in case it was able to respond um that does take up most of the day if not year uh so that's how you pass this coronavirus crisis pretty quickly we've got three weeks of lockdown walk your toddler to the park once and back that will cover the entire time uh, i've made a few crusades to the shops only to find everyone in there understands personal space even less than usual uh, and i had to mutter fuck off to a number of people that were either trying to get in front of me or embrace me um hey i understand the one for the latter but not now buddy really not the time i've seen enough zombie films to know how that goes um and then of course the shop only had a handful of things in that we needed and a security guard was standing by the bananas which made me feel both pleased and like i should have been wearing a handmaid's outfit and whispering under his eye to everyone around me it's impossible not to see all of this like a film or tv amalgamation isn't it you know 28 days later combined with outbreak handmaid's tale and then today my parents did a drop off of belated prezzies because uh, it was my agent's birthday on sunday uh, and they parked at the end of our road so the little one wouldn't see them in case she wanted a hug which is heartbreaking um and then my mum appeared with a scarf around her face placed the bags on the floor i had to wait till she moved back into the car then i went and picked them up it was like being in an episode of the wire i probably should have soundtracked it with tom waits and sirens before getting rid of my phone on the way back to my flat such strange behavior for such a very strange time so of course they wouldn't have been able to do that later in the week because that would be bad um, I should add that my agent had a fantastic second birthday uh, involving her eating cake and pasta and taking off all her clothes to do it in what I consider to be the ultimate lesson of how to self-isolate. Let us all learn from her. 
Uh, we also now accidentally stockpiled an absolute shit ton of cake, uh, which is dangerous. Uh, the wonderful Sarah Millican posted on Instagram today that if we all come out of this fat, then no one will be considered fat. And I generally think that's the wisest thing I've heard anyone say in this entire crisis. So, uh, loads of you have donated to my Kofi or Patreon pages over the last week, and I honestly, I honestly can't tell you how much that is appreciated right now. Um, I mean, it is basically my only income, uh, and I'm aware I've got a little bit of savings because I'm self-employed, and after 10 years of not realising that I had to save money for when things were shit, um, I have spent two years saving up uh, some money, but no, I had no idea things would be this shit. Uh, so this is usual January times 10, but with much better, more trolling weather. What I mean um, is obviously, you know, food banks really need help right now uh, far more than me uh, so many charities desperately need help too but once you've helped them uh, if you could throw me a few quid at ko-fi.com forward slash bro or patreon.com forward slash bro um, it is really really appreciated right now and uh, maybe the government will announce some self-employed help uh, in which case you can stop um, but until then please help um, big shout out this week with a deep wheezy coughing breath uh, to Maidley Dave Tim Anonymous Ruby Helen Anonymous, but another one. Baldy, Sim, Taz, Matt G, Phil, Anne-Marie, somebody who's a somebody and not anonymous. Scotty, Jeremy, Never Fading Wood, cheeky name. Daniel, Pablo, Steve, Just Steve and James for your so, so appreciated Kofis. Um, and also to Helen, Bradley and Matthew for joining the Patreon. All of that, as I said, is so appreciated. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Next Up Comedy are also supporting comedians who've lost all their work um, at hecklethevirus.com. And there you can see what their live streaming programme is each week too. Uh, and I mentioned there as well, I am hosting some people's uh, shows on Wednesday and Friday at 7pm this week. And then next week on Wednesday, uh, one of my comedy specials will be on too. Um, if you sign up to Next Up Comedy, using the forward slash tin and is great um, that's nextupcomedy.com forward slash tin and is great and I swear I swear I didn't ask for that they did that they, they like me they're very nice um, they sound really Trump they like me they think I'm great hugely great no they, they don't I, I, I didn't oh god this is awkward anyway look if you go there then I get a few quid too which is very handy um, and the Cosmic Shambles team uh, that's sort of Robin Ince's crew um, they're doing the same with Stay at Home Festival and I had a lot of fun doing their live streaming comedy gig last night which I mean it's really odd just shouting jokes at my computer and not hearing any responses um, but it was also quite fun I think people enjoyed it and you can watch that gig on their YouTube channel uh, see all their live streaming events including astronaut commander Chris Hadfield answering questions on Thursday at 6pm I think um, and that's all at cosmicshambles.com forward slash stay at home and I'll pop all those links in the pod blurb too um, I'm also releasing regular comedy club for kids podcasts for the Weans um, I'm hopefully going to be live streaming a kids gig too for all of them that are stuck at home and the comedy club for kids.co.uk site has worksheets, puzzles and loads of vids on it too. Um, I recorded a silly video for the Royal Albert Hall this week for children who might be worried about everything that's going on um, and you can find that via the Royal Albert Hall socials as well. Uh, and I've been popping some stupid, mostly kid-friendly isolation tips on my Twitter, Instagram and even LinkedIn because I have that much time to kill. I mean, yes, really, we, we, all, we all do. We should all be doing it. We can all be doing it. Um, but there's loads of stuff going on, loads of people making really good things and streaming shows. And I guess the important question is to you, the listener, what do you need? Have you got too much? Uh, would it be best if we all just left you alone to enjoy some peace and quiet uh, during these three weeks? Do we want three weeks of solitude um, or do you want as much stuff as possible? I can't remember if I released the recording of my work in progress shows from last year, but I can do that. I mean, they're not very good, uh, but I could do that. Uh, or if for some awful reason you really wanted me to, I could release the audio from my early shows from 2009, 2010. 2010, 
2011 but they are proper shit and full of jokes that I really don't think I'd even make now um, but I'd do it for you god damn it I'd do it for you the listener um, do you want some Parpol Bro live streaming Q&A's should I just stream my current 20 to 30 minute stand up set or would you want me reading description after description of various politicians I am open to suggestion um, whatever you need so drop me a line at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com or any of the socials and uh, I mean any of the socials who am I who am I who says that you know on them the sites that the kids use and look hey we've all got a while before this is over so do put in your requests and let's be honest I'll probably get round to doing all of them it's true innit uh, also, what do you want from this actual podcast? Because I'm going to be doing this every week. Um, but it's going to get pretty boring if all I do is report on the coronavirus and what I found in the backs of my cupboard instead of the rice that I was really hoping for. Uh, the news is changing every day while also being uh, very similar and quite bleak. So it's very hard to know what you might need while we're all locked in. Um, someone suggested I speak to a mental health expert for next week's show, which I'm going to try and do uh, if I can find one. Um, who else? What else? Give me a shout to tell me or even just to say hey, because let's face it, any contact now, isn't it? I spent a good few minutes even contemplating taking a spam call survey the other day just for the added human chat. Um, but I'm here. This show is here. My agent throwing toast at the wall is here. We all have nowhere else to be, so I may as well make it something you enjoy, need, or can play loudly out of your balcony to upset the neighbours who won't be able to leave their house to complain. On this week's show, it's Coronavirus, Coronavirus, a chat with economic historian Chris Colvin about, yes, the coronavirus, but in the past, and a look at the Windrush Lessons Learned review, which everyone has ignored because of the coronavirus. I don't remember this bit in the film Outbreak, do you? Where Dustin Hoffman and everyone just sat around at home in their pants thinking, fuck me, I miss when the news was full of just 12 less awful but still awful things that at least weren't the fucking virus. There are so many political issues going on in the world right now that it's hard to know exactly what to talk to guests about on this podcast. I mean, should I talk about the coronavirus outbreak or possibly the coronavirus outbreak? I could, of course, uh, cover COVID-19, but then that might take up time best used to discuss novel coronavirus pneumonia. But this week, I thought it'd be most useful to focus on, yes, that fucking infectious lurgy that's ruining everything, aka virus bastard, aka coughing shit at illness. Now, you might think you know everything about this virus and its friends, or 6,008 ways to be patronising to someone about how they wash their hands, or even all the best body parts to direct your cough into that don't belong to someone else. But actually, this virus is brand spanking new. Newer than Disney+, Plus, and probably in as many households this week and ruining as many parents' lives. So, when there's new crises that we haven't quite encountered before, how exactly do we work out what to do to cope with it and predict how things may pan out? Well, you can either make racist stuff up in your head and shout it online as loudly as possible. You can ignore it and hope it goes away. Or more sensibly, you can look at the past at times when things nearly like this or that look vaguely like this have happened and work out what lessons we should learn from them. Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it, said philosopher George Santagna, who died in 1952 after World War II, but somehow still believing in eugenics because it turns out everyone's a massive fucking hypocrite. But on that, he was right. Not the eugenics bit, the bit before that. And right now, we're having a virus bastard and a massive financial crisis. And guess what? In the past, there have also been many virus bastards and also many, many terrible recessions. And what can we take from delving into those events? That they were all shit. 
But actually, it's a lot more than that. And this week, I spoke to Chris Colvin. Chris is a senior lecturer at Queen's University Belfast and on his website describes himself as a general purpose economic historian. But right now, when his research involves, among many other things, historical banking crises and the effects of events on those, he has got a very specific purpose, which is looking at exactly what we can look back at to work out exactly how things may play out. Or rather, in this climate, play in. Chris wrote a piece in the conversation last week about the economic lessons learned from the Spanish flu, and so I got in touch to ask him to talk to me in more depth about what those lessons are. But first, you might be wondering exactly what an economic historian is. And well, to be honest, so did I. Luckily, Chris explained all. Here he is. Hi, Chris. Um, firstly, thank you for uh, having the time today. Um, but before anything else, I suppose I should ask, how are you? These are very unusual times. Are you doing OK? Yes, I'm doing fine, thanks. My university has recommended that we work from home and uh, I'm lucky enough to be in a position to be able to do that. Uh, I have a nice home office, which is where I'm talking to you from right now. Oh, that's good. That's good. And you're handling the, the, the self-isolation and staying at home all OK. You haven't you haven't gone. Ca- you haven't got cabin fever just yet. No, no, it's all good. Um, there's still plenty of things on Netflix that I haven't watched. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Great. Very good to hear that. Um, well, I suppose uh, the first proper question I should ask you really uh, is uh, you're an economic historian. What exactly does that mean? Well, Yeah, um, it's a good question because I don't think many people have heard of this thing called economic history. People have heard of economics and people have heard of history, but put them both together. What is what is that all about? I I think there's there's two two answers. Um, An economic historian is a historian of the economy, uh, but it's also an economist uh, who analyzes history. And they're two different things and we need them both to be an economic historian. Um, So what I mean by. Um, an economy, so you know, a historian of an economy, uh, well, that's all about complex systems of human interaction, trying to understand production and distribution and trade, things like welfare and equity, allocation of resources um, uh, through markets, but also through planning. And then what I mean by economics, um, it's the tools of the trade. It's understanding incentives, using theory, it's about using maths and data, making judgments, thinking about causal connections. And what an economic historian does is, it, is they mix all those things together. And the, the difference between an economist and an economic historian is that we are interested in um, historical questions and um, we start with the history and then move to the economic methods to try and understand that history. And the thing that we bring to the to the table is our understanding of context. Uh, by context, we mean the specific set of circumstances at the time. So we are hyper aware of the fact that economic theory has to be adapted to the context to fully understand it. So we can't just apply a set of tools blindly to a particular situation. We have to think how can we adapt that to the specifics? That's where the toolkit of the historian comes together. So we're, we're quite interdisciplinary. We use these two things, economics and history, and we meld them together. And I think as a species, if you like, we have a lot to offer um, uh, in a time like, like now, because uh, you know, we can think about historical parallels and analogs uh, to, to the, to the um, 
um, to, to current day events and try and learn from these. Does that, that, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense. It's it's, it's fascinating. A, a little while back, we spoke to the uh, I spoke to the economist Danny Blancheflower, and he does. A, a, he's a you know an economist, but he does the economics of walking around and sees how human life, or well, says that he kind of looks at how people are and how they work. And and, and it's fascinating what you're doing is looking at history and how people were and, and lives and putting it in a very real context of the the economy at the time, which just seems a very sensible thing to do. <laughs> um, and and I, you're right in that right now is a very important time to be speaking to someone like yourself. Um, COVID. 19 coronavirus is going to cause a rather large economic uh, crisis for quite a while i mean it already has done um from your studies and and you know the, you you've looked quite a lot into um epidemics and 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 their, what's happened uh, what sort of effect they've had um what historical precedents are there for how a pandemic can affect an economy well um i think a good place to start would be to look at the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918-1919. Um, 100 years ago now, one third of the globe caught the disease approximately, uh, upward of 20 million, maybe more in the region of 50-60 million people died. We, we don't know the exact death toll and we don't know the exact percentage of people who, who died. It's difficult um, exactly to work this out because of course people are not necessarily all dying of the flu, they're dying of associated things. And of course, this is happening at the same time as the end of the World War, the First World War. And so there's lots of uh, compounding factors. But, um, okay, so ballpark figure, 50 million people died. It's huge numbers and it's spread across the globe. It's our last truly global pandemic. And I think that's a good place to start to think about how that happened, what were the immediate causes and consequences, and what were the long-term cause, uh, 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 what was the long-term impact? And that's that's where, um, you know, the toolkit of the economic historian is useful, because we think about causes, we think about the anatomy of things, and then we think about the consequences. So, so, so um, yeah, Sh should we start with, with the Spanish flu? Yes, please, yes. Yeah, so what, 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 where shall I start? What, what's, uh, what, what do you want to know? Well, uh, I mean, in, in context of how, what was the Spanish flu? Was it more dangerous uh, than the coronavirus? What do we, what do we know about the flu itself? Did it uh, spread in a, in a particular way? What was the reason for it causing and, and getting to quite so many people? Okay, um, good, good questions. So the Spanish flu um, uh, spread quite rapidly throughout the world partly because of the particular context in which it first arose. So it was first sort of reported on in, by Spanish newspapers because they were largely the only free newspapers in Europe. Spain was neutral in World War One. The rest of the media was being censored. So we, we call it Spanish flu, but it's not really Spanish flu. We don't know exactly where it started. Once it, one hypothesis is actually it started in China and was brought to Europe, to the battlefields, by Chinese migrant labourers who were used by... Um, allied troops um, uh, in supply chains, and there's there's a big war grave in Nolette in northern France, which uh, there's a, a you know Chinese migrant labourers um, is full of them, uh, uh, all dying on, in in this in the same months of 1918. And um, so that's one hypothesis. But it's first really detected on the battlefront, and it spreads quite rapidly. Um, 
uh, also, you know, on the German side. Um, and it's first really described scientifically in, in America. So, so um, troops are, of course, returning home after the war and bringing the disease with them. So it spreads uh, across the Atlantic and it spreads across the globe. Right. So um, uh, that's how it's spreading. People move moving about. And um, uh, so um, uh, the, the other context, of course, is that Europe has just gone through a period, a sustained period of, uh, of destruction and, and uh, people are living poor, deprived existences, especially in Germany, which experiences something akin to a famine at the end of the First World War. So people are already weak. They're, they're, they're much more susceptible to, to flu. And so um, uh, this, I think, helps explain why the death rate was so high. Because some of the, you know, initially when hearing about the Spanish flu, uh, you know, comparing to now, I was thinking, well, the coronavirus is spreading a lot because people can travel now and there's a lot of transport and easy transport. and People travel for business, not just for holidays or to visit relatives. Um, but as you said, it was a time of war. So people were actually traveling all over the world all the time. Exactly. So I don't think it's wholly dissimilar in that respect um, to, to today. Now, of course, economists, economic historians never say uh, the past is you can perfectly map on, on to today. Uh, find, uh, that, I mean, that would be silly. Uh, so it's about drawing lessons from, from periods which are different. So we need to understand how they were different and what impact that difference has on, um, uh, on, 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 on understanding cause and effects and on, on drawing the policy lessons. So one thing that um, is very clear from the literature on this pandemic, the, the 1918 pandemic, is that um, public policies to try and curb the spread worked. So we have very good data. There's a couple of different studies um, uh, that uh, we, we can put on your, your, your website um, that look at different US cities. And uh, um, what they do is, is, is they look at how the, the city governments um, responded to the flu pandemic. And they respond in different ways. So some of them closed down schools and um, and colleges and things like that. Others closed down bars and restaurants. Um, and, uh, um, you know, in some of them, they're even prohibiting funerals, right? Uh, any any gatherings of any kind. So what 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 economic historians have done is they've looked at these these um, these different contexts and looked at the difference in the impact of the flu across these different places. And two, two cities that stand out are St. Louis and Philadelphia. So, um, you know, we, we, we've all seen well, Boris Johnson talking about flattening the sombrero. Uh, you know, it's about uh, trying to spread out the impacts uh, of the of, of the flu pandemic um, yeah, uh, over a long period so that society can cope. Now, if you look at these two cities, Philadelphia did pretty much nothing in the first wave of, of this flu pandemic and had a huge spike in death. Uh, it, you know, uh, the death toll was, was enormous uh, and it was instantaneous. Where St. Louis implemented a lot of these public measures and their peak was much later and much lower. And they had a, um, uh, it was a much less severe flu pandemic as a result. So just comparing these two cities alone is sort of proof, if you like, uh, as far as I can see, that the government's strategy to try and um, uh, uh, limit social interaction and uh, uh, and spread out 
and the impact is is a, is a good thing. It's it's got I see there's good historical evidence that a strategy like this is um, it works. That's uh, it's fascinating. I've been seeing graphs going around today of two cities in Italy, and, and I cannot remember what their names are, which is awful research for me, but of being very much the same thing of one who implemented social distancing and isolation from the 23rd of February and one who implemented it later in March. And the one that implemented it in February has got a much lower curve and uh, the peak is much flatter uh, compared to the one that happened in March. So it's, it's pretty much exactly what you were saying. Yes. So, um, so yeah, so, so that, that's the first lesson, if you like, from the 1918 pandemic that, that, uh, that, that these, these measures actually work. Um, which is which is good as long as we of course um, uh, follow the advice and, and and implement them as much as we can. Yeah, but I think the so the, the Spanish flu pandemic is one area that we can we can learn from one um, uh, one historical episode we can learn from. But there's other things too. So of course this this uh, flu pandemic uh, today the the COVID nineteen pandemic sorry uh, today is having an economic impact. Right. And to try and understand that, perhaps looking at the Spanish flu pandemic is not the right analogue, because, of course, um, it did cause a lot of economic destruction. But it's quite difficult to disentangle from other things happening at the time. Um, uh, 1918, 1919, 1920, I think, saw the largest um, drops in GDP in Britain in, 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 in ever, pretty much. Um, but of course, it's also happening because um, of World War One, right? So uh, the uh, coming to an end of the war, um, a massive change in the way the, the economy um, has got to function, adjust back to, to peacetime. This is also um, causing economic disruption. So disentangling that from the flu is quite difficult. Um, so perhaps a better analog is either um, uh, the Great Depression. Um, or coming out of World War Two, so a different war, um, and and I and, and so I can talk about that if you like. I guess as part of your job as an economic historian, is you have to almost uh, combine elements of history together in order to look at how things are now, because as you said, nothing is entirely comparable. Things are very different. So if you can take a, the the kind of pandemic element of the Spanish flu and how that spread, but then you can combine it with the 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 recession and depression that we had after World War Two, and that gives you a sort of reasonable model for now, does it? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, uh, it's not perfect. And trying to understand the differences between then and now helps us understand um, uh, uh, perhaps the, or contextualize what is happening at the moment. So with the Great Depression, uh, there was a huge drop off in um, uh, industrial outputs, huge increase in unemployment, all these things. Um, uh, they happened over the period, a period of three or four years. Right. Um, in the current situation, what took three or four years then is taking three or four months now. Right. So it might be worse. It might be worse than the Great Depression. There's a big, large, much bigger shock happening much more rapidly today uh, than than uh, in the 1930s. So from that situ uh, from that um, perspective, you know, perhaps we should be very worried. Um, the the World War II analogy is quite interesting because in World War II, there was a rapid um, increase in national debt um, to to pay for the war effort. And it took countries 20, 30 years to pay 
this stuff up back. In fact, some of it's still not paid back. It took a long time to 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 basically pay all this back. And if you look at the the current policy measures being discussed and implemented, um, uh, the kinds of sums involved are going to take us decades to uh, to repay. Um, so the scale of the the um, the public policy response is is akin to the scale of the the policy response in World War Two. So, you know, the, 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 this might sound shocking to your listeners, but um, uh, in some respects, this is worse than the Great Depression in in, in its um, in its uh, speed and speed of adjustment. And in some respects, this is this is like you know recovering from war. This is going to be with us for a long time. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Uh, we'll be back with Chris in a minute, but first... Uh, middle bit this week. Uh, what to do? What to do? Hang on. Maybe it should be a... So this week in Brexit news. Um... Um, okay. Uh, okay. Well, how about how about this for the middle bit then? Um... Hardly global broadcast. So everywhere in the world has coronavirus. Uh, okay. Um, okay. Hang on. All right. Let's try something else. How about this week I give us a tiny breather, which is probably the wrong word, from coronavirus chat, and instead focus on another area that the government has got completely wrong in recent times and is also not that easy to find any humour in. Sound perfect? Good. So, the Windrush Lessons Learned review was published just a few days ago. The report looked into the 2018 scandal where members of the Windrush generation, rightfully citizens in the UK, were wrongly detained and deported and denied rights by the Home Office as part of their hostile environment policy. And as you'll be entirely unsurprised to know, this review said that the UK's Home Office was more racist than Cheryl Tweedy watching repeats of old sitcom Love Thy Neighbour. I mean... I'm paraphrasing, actually. But the report by the Inspector of Constabulary, Wendy Williams, said very clearly that the Home Office showed ignorance and thoughtlessness on the issue of race due to institutional failures. So, not quite racist, but, I mean, it's there. It's there in between the lines. But, I mean, hey, the Home Office have got to stick to their brand, right? You know, it's all about the brand. 
I mean, I joke, but for the last 10 years, the Home Secretary position went from Ursa while she's stuck in the Crystal Chamber, Theresa May, to I bet she spends her weekends pushing children over, Amber Rudd, to now, what if Picasso only painted total shits, Pretty Patel, all of whom have insisted on being very, very harsh on immigration. We've had phrases like, if you believe you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere, which isn't true because the world is somewhere, duh. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. There have been insistencies that workers must speak English in order to fit in with British culture, even though really to do that they'd be better off speaking their own language and just pointing and shouting at stuff they'd like. Incorrect accusations of foreign workers taking British jobs or pretending health tourism is a thing when it isn't, or even getting vans to drive around with go home or face arrest written on them. Language that Theresa May herself organised as she said the first draft wasn't harsh enough. I've no idea what that first draft said, but I'm guessing it was something like, where are you from? No, I mean, originally. So for this review to come out and say that about the Home Office is a relief, even if it is much overdue. There were several key and very important findings in it, starting with that the scandal was predictable and preventable, saying that the causes could be traced back to successive rounds of immigration policy and legislation all the way from the 1960s to now, all of which had the intention of restricting certain groups from living in the UK, because we're a hospitable, welcoming bunch like that. The Immigration Act 1971 confirmed that the Windrush generation had the rights to live in the UK, but it didn't give them any documents, meaning they couldn't prove it and it's not expecting of people to keep up with all the constant changes to law. In fact, it's far more expected for the government to not get rid of all the documentation they have. Well, I mean, it was expected, but in recent years, I mean, we're generally just surprised if they don't fall over when walking more than three feet in a straight line. The Windrush generation were largely forgotten about by several governments, which mean the hostile environment policy caught them in its net, like dolphins. Not dolphins near tuna, just dolphins where the net was meant to get dolphins because it was thrown by bastards who didn't think it through and assumed if someone didn't have documentation that they were here unlawfully. Honestly, even if they'd been given a flimsy bit of card, most people wouldn't remember where something like that was, even if they were given it over 60 years ago. Shouldn't be their responsibility. I spend 90% of every day trying to find things that I only put down five minutes before. You know, like my daughter. The report states that the Home Office didn't heed any of the warnings, and then when stories did start coming out, they were too slow to react. Yes, I'm still talking about the Windrush report. No, I promise I'm not talking about coronavirus, but yes, it is uncanny. I mean, I could also be talking about flooding. Or so many other things. But hey, I guess you've got to stick to your brand, right? It's all about the brand. Williams says the victims were let down by organisational and operational failings, saying there was a lack of empathy for them, with lots of instances of dehumanising jargon and clichés, something the current government has dealt with by taking that out of the Home Office and letting the Prime Minister be in charge of. There are 30 recommendations for the Home Office in the report, and the first of those is that the Home Office ministers offer an unqualified apology to those affected by the Windrush scandal and the wider black African Caribbean community. Something Pretty Patel should find easy, as she's very unqualified with absolutely everything she does. Actually, I say that, but Patel has apologised already, saying last week that there was nothing she could say that would undo the suffering of those affected, and that on behalf of this and successive governments, she was truly sorry. I'm not sure how she managed to do that without smoke arising from her head or her face slightly melting in anguish, but it was really, really good that she did. Other recommendations include a review of the whole hostile environment policy, the need to establish an overarching strategic race advisory board, and while it doesn't explicitly mention the deportation of foreign-born offenders, as we've seen in recent months, one of the recommendations says data on other Commonwealth cases needs to be looked at, as well as for Caribbean nations. Wendy Williams has also offered to return to the Home Office in 18 months and see how they're doing with progress on all of those things. You know, like a badass teacher checking up on that pupil that's definitely not working. But of course, this is all assuming anyone will be allowed outside in a year and a half's time. 
But despite all this, and even though I've sort of said it does say they're racist, the report actually does not say the Home Office is institutionally racist, as apparently they carefully considered whether the concept of institutional racism, as originally outlined during the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, was relevant to describe what happened with the Windrush scandal. But Wendy Williams said that they didn't satisfy that criteria in full. Amazing, the Home Office is so incompetent it can't even do racism thoroughly. I mean, I'm certain Williams wanted to say that it was institutionally racist, but wasn't really allowed. And in a few years' time, someone will realise that if you only read the first letter of every paragraph, it'll spell something like, they're all more racist than people who order chips and omelette in an Indian restaurant. That so much of the Home Office's policy failed to understand why their hostile environment strategy would directly affect so many black British people is why 15 race equality and migrant rights organisations are calling for a review into the department's institutional racism and whether its immigration policies are in accordance with equality law about racial discrimination. An apology from Priti Patel, as unlikely and incredible as that is, isn't enough. And this review has shown that the whole Home Office needs a reform, as does immigration policy altogether. While I'd like to think that several months of no one being able to travel anywhere might give the pause for thought that's needed for things to change once it's all back to normal, it's been reported this week that the Home Office is still insisting on deportations, even during this pandemic. Which, as well as being unnecessarily aggressive and badly timed, will also just potentially spread the virus more. I do wonder if they're just so institutionally stupid that they think someone from another country with the virus is a foreign body in a foreign body, so they need to get rid of them doubly quick. I do hope Wendy Williams does check up on them soon, or there's every chance they'll have half the country scheduled to be on a plane within a few weeks. And now, back to Chris. Right, and and how much of our situation now is, or has been affected by the fact that we had a financial crash just over a decade ago? Um, You know, we've had austerity for 10 years. Has, Has more recent history had an impact on how we deal with things now too? That's a very, very good question. So um, the 2008 crisis, I would say, still hasn't ended, right? So we're having this um, this uh, COVID-19 pandemic when we still haven't recovered from the last crisis. And w- what I mean by that is that um, the 2008 crisis resulted in all these kind of exotic policies being introduced, quantitative easing, things like that which we still haven't paid back for. Um, So there's all this uh, strange thing on the balance sheets of central banks, and now central banks have have, have got to do it again, and they still haven't um, uh, sorted out the last lot. Uh, Banks were kept alive in the last crisis uh, through policies of nationalisation and other kinds of um, uh, support. They, you know, these things, you know, uh, governments are still paying uh, for them. Banks are still nationalised, uh, uh, a, a, a lot of them are. So we've got a compounding effect of one crisis on top of another. Uh, and you think of it, especially in southern Europe, uh, places like Spain and Italy and, 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 and Greece, which suffered um, very badly in the in the sovereign debt crisis that came out of the banking crisis, um, uh, they're, they're still adjusting to that. They're still uh, reeling from the consequences of that. And now they've got this on top of that. Um, this, this is this is uh, this to be um, a, a seriously uh, concerning. Now, as an economic historian, uh, I would say, of course, the um, uh, the causes of these two things are different. So, the causes of the two thousand eight crisis are what an economist would call endogenous to the system, which means they are internal. They they are a consequence of you know um, 
bad decisions by bankers. Uh, they, they, they're a result of the institutions and the incentive structures. Of course, now the crisis is exogenous. It's external. It's a, it's a, it's a shock. It's like a, a sudden war invasion unexpectedly by a, a foreign power. Uh, so, uh, but the consequences may be similar. So although the causes are different, the consequences may be similar. You mentioned earlier that one of the lessons learned from, say, the Spanish flu was about the importance of social uh, self-isolation and social distancing. Um, what uh, have we learned in terms of the economy from the, the post-World War II crash? You said it took 30 years to pay off and a lot of it was, was nationalisation. Are those things that we should be looking at now? Are those the lessons that we should be learning from then in order to how, how we deal with this over the next 10, 20 years? Well, the, the nationalizations after World War Two, well, they 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 happened say after du during the crisis itself, uh, they did they didn't nationalize things, and um, you know there wasn't enough time to to uh, to, to think to, to 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 do fancy things like that. Um, it was much more direct support. So uh, m a move to central planning, um, you know, directing firms uh, to to produce certain things. Uh, so in the, in the parallel would be um, today directing firms to make medical equipment uh, that is necessary. Uh, you know, there's no time to nationalise things. We, we we need to we need to to to, to do it in, in in different ways, right? Um, now there are certain sectors that may eventually need national nationalising. I'm thinking in particular the airline industry. Um, so in a few years' time, when all this stuff is over. Um, well, we've already seen Flybe go bust, um, partly because of the um, COVID-19 uh, crisis, but I think there were already problems with that airline. But other airlines are also going to going to suffer, and some of them are now going to going to only exist if the state uh, pours money into them, nation uh, basically nationalises them. Um, and uh, uh, tourism industry. Um, now, I'm not saying uh, a nationalised tourism uh, industry. Uh, th you know, nationalising centre parks or whatever sounds crazy. But uh, the the these um, uh, the, these things will come up. I think in in the public discourse in in the years to come. Because you know, things like airlines and holidays um, uh, are essential facilities. Right? We need our holidays. We need to travel. I mean, I live in Belfast. I need to get on an airplane to get anywhere else. Right? So you know, there's no alternative for many. Uh, for for uh, for for many people who who live in um, far flung flung places, uh, so so that that discussion of nationalisation will come into play. But I think it will be a while yet. I think more immediately, uh, governments have got to think about how to direct uh, privately owned firms into doing things that they wouldn't otherwise normally have done, um, and to maintain employment. Right. So we already see this. Uh, happening um, in in the tourism uh, industry where people are being laid off, uh, you know, um, uh, hotel workers um, and things like that. Now, um, uh, it's much more expensive, I think, for for governments uh, to uh, to let them go out of work and then to support them through social security than it is to keep them in work and to subsidise the firms. Uh, that are employing them to keep them in work, even if it's doing nothing, right? So I think there's ways in which the state can can direct and support um, private sector enterprise to, to doing things like keeping on to workers that they wouldn't naturally otherwise do in peacetime. 
Sure. Yeah, I, I've been looking at a lot of sort of what other countries are doing. You know, for example, uh, Denmark sort of paying seventy five percent of everyone's wages just in one lump. So you know, for for a couple of months or whatever, and and there's various support like that. And I, I'm self employed, so I'm looking very close at what Europe's doing about that, as we haven't yet in the UK. Um, but I wondered what, uh, you know, are are there things that the the government say will be looking at from the past that they're saying this is the only way that we can tackle this? You're talking, you know, you're talking about putting large, you know, money in and supporting people right now, and then potentially nationalizing later maybe is that the only way that people have have dealt with this is that the only kind of sensible way forward that's that's happened in history well i think we 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 get to the limits of of economic history when when the context is just so different um and uh the the it's it's very difficult for me to speculate about about the future um the 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 situation today is quite different we have uh, already a much more sophisticated social security uh, system uh, than say um, uh, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. So um, uh, thinking through the impacts of, of this uh, crisis with our existing safety nets uh, um, it, that, that are in place, even if they weren't changed, uh, means that um, we're in a better position already. You know, there's, 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 not a, uh, there's not the same reluctance to spend public money that there is um, say in the interwar period, you know, the size of the state is already significantly larger than it was in 1918, 1919. Uh, the percentage of GDP associated with with the with the state, um, despite the fact that we've privatised everything uh, in the 80s and 90s, is still rather large. So we we, all, we can already you know move to central planning um, uh, in 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 ways that we couldn't then. So. Um, I think I'm starting to ramble now. I can't remember what your question was. Going into full lecturer mode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. It's wonderful. Um, what other considerations uh, about the aftermath of pandemics should we be taking consideration that perhaps we're not at the moment? Um, I know something that you've written on is about uh, scarring and selection uh, after the Irish famine, and I, I'm aware that some listeners might find this a bit upsetting, but it, it's a very important factor uh, in sort of future economy. Um, yes, so we've talked already about the immediate and, and, and medium term economic impacts, but I think the, the scarring of selection issues is is is, uh, is is about the very long term consequences. So, um, the generation born during the nineteen eighteen pandemic, same as as the generation born during the Irish famine, were scarred permanently. So, if you compare individuals born in nineteen eighteen with those born just before or just after that pandemic, that generation in adulthood was. Um, much less successful. They were poorer. They were uh, um, uh, in in uh, uh, lo- lower down in the socioeconomic um, uh, pyramid, if you like. Um, they were less healthy. They were uh, more more prone to um, uh, to chronic disease, to mental health issues. All these things. There was a lasting impact, and it's because of this thing called the um, infant. Um, uh, the fe- the fetal origins hypothesis. So what what a lot of medical scholars and economic historians have looked at is the impact of being exposed in utero, so in the womb, to to ecological disasters. And the 1918 flu pandemic is an example of that. The current COVID-19 um, pandemic may be similar. So uh, we're not saying that you know the the fetus catches COVID-19. No, it, the, the mother may catch COVID-19. Um, and uh, 
uh, they have a, an acute um, shock to their health, multiple weeks, multiple months. And during that time, um, it, it affects um, the, uh, the, the, the fetus in a way that um, uh, has permanent lasting uh, uh, impact. So uh, believe it or not, for instance, most of your height is determined um, by genes, of, uh, of, of course, about 80%, but 20% of your height, your, your physical stature in adulthood is determined by um, the, uh, the, the food and disease environment when you are in the womb and in that first uh, year of life, right? So if you are short, um, uh, chances are uh, that your parents are short, uh, but uh, a confounding factor, if you are, for instance, shorter, significantly shorter than your parents, it, it may have been that there's some shock in childhood, in early childhood, that has a lasting impact. So, um, and just as it has an effect on physical stature, it has an effect on all these other health outcomes. And those health outcomes have economic implications on social mobility, on on success in the labour market, on, on all these things. So, yes, it's 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 depressing news. Um, the 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 uh, the generation that is about to be born um, uh, may there may be lasting uh, uh, implications for that uh, for that generation unless we design public policies to compensate for that. It's surprising the amount of compensation that is possible. Um, but uh, a health health uh, public policy. Uh, professionals need to start thinking about that now that's fascinating yeah I, I'm, I'm not a very tall person at all and my parents aren't either but i it's uh, amazing to know that maybe somewhere down the family line there was someone that unfortunately had a shock as a child and that's what's caused it so we could well, be looking that's, that's not what i'm saying because of course um uh uh it doesn't affect your genes right so you might have full genes but you might be short because you were affected but you'll pass on your tall genes to the next generation it, it's not something that is uh, passed on generation to generation to generation. Unlikely. There are theories that that that, that say that there is an element of that. So it might be a, a one generation impact. I don't think this is going to last for hundreds of years. That's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Um, so uh, let's look at positive things. Uh, you mentioned earlier that there are a number of uh, social structures that are better now than they were in previous periods that we might look at um and uh I'm, I'm guessing also there are big differences now in the way people work people perhaps work more in self-isolation already what what things might make a positive change to how this plays out compared to say the spanish flu or or other uh right. historical events well for for a start the economy in a lot of areas can continue to go on right so i can work from home you can work from home um uh, there are structures in place for that. Now, unfortunately, this only applies to, say, roughly the, the top 50% of the income distribution. So the, the bottom 50% uh, will, will be uh, uh, um, unable to work uh, if this continues for, for, for a very long time. So we've got to be worried about that. But, um, you know, we, we're, we're already much healthier um, than we were uh, 100 years ago. Um, uh, we we live in much more comfortable, on average, much more comfortable e existences. Uh, we have um, much more stable em employment generally than than we did, and we have um, uh, measures in place already for those at the bottom end of the uh, of of the of the distribution um, of 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 wealth and, and income. They're not perfect, uh, and there's lots of problems 
And some of those have been exacerbated by things like austerity policy in the last uh, decade or so. Um, uh, it's, it's a shame that we went down that route. The economic evidence for austerity uh, is not there. It, it was more dogma than, 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 than economics that drove that. Uh, so it, it's put us uh, perhaps in a worse situation than we could have been. But uh, you know, at least we have we have an infrastructure. It could it could be uh, 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 ramped up to 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 levels um, that we we've seen before in 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 the not so distant past, uh, and even further, it could be expanded uh, uh, be beyond that. But of course, there's going to be costs to that. You know, it's going to result in um, a, a, a increase in in national debt and things like that. But we might argue that's a good thing. That's that's actually. Um, what government should be doing, right? In a time of crisis, what, that's a very good use of of, uh, of 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 public money. It's a very good use of uh, of debt, right? It's to it's to keep the economy going. It's to help save lives. It it it's uh, um it, it, it it's it's a, it's it's not frivolous. Sure. No. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. It it, it does. Uh... No, I mean, it's what we hope they would do. <laughs> That's, I think, to put it to put it bluntly. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Chris. And uh, one question I ask all the interviewees we have on the show, which is just that apart from yourself um, and uh, your work and your Twitter, um, which trusted sources would you recommend that listeners follow or read up on about um, the politics or economics around pandemics and our current crisis? Who are the people that you uh, go to for information? Okay, so the... Um... Uh, the Centre for Economic Policy Research has an excellent web resource called Vox EU. I think it's called it's, it's voxeu.org. And what they do is they have professional economists, economic historians, all kinds of uh, public policy people uh, write short versions of of their research. And um, they have currently uh, a very uh, good ebook on COVID-19 and possible economic impact and the public policy measures that could be introduced. They've written it in a record time. It's got some top scholars uh, who have contributed and it was uh, published last week. And I think it's uh, well worth a look through. There's lots of different chapters. Um, there's also some economic historians who have contributed uh, to that. So that's where I, I reckon it uh, would be a good place to start. And uh, things are going to be appearing on on the uh, Vox EU um, uh, uh, a policy blog, I think, all the time over the, the 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 coming weeks and months and years about about this, um, it's it's focused the the attention of economists um, uh, as as you can imagine. Uh, um, so so I think that would be a good place uh, to to, uh, to to have a look. Thanks to Chris for that. Uh, you can find Chris on Twitter at Cleo Chris, uh, C-L-I-O Chris. And his website is cleochris.com, where you can find links to his articles and courses, as well as his book, An Economist's Guide to Economic History, co-written with Matthias Bloom and available, well, let's face it, probably just in online bookshops at the Mo. Uh, but do try and get it from an independent one. Yeah, don't give Amazon more of your money. Uh, the book's website is at bloomandcolvin.org. That's B-L-U-M and colvin.org. And all of those links will be available on the podcast blurb and website too. Uh, what else do you need to hear in coming weeks? More about coronavirus, perhaps other aspects of what it all means, or do you need some escapism and visions of other political possibilities? Or should I just replace the interview bit with 30 minutes of solid, terrible jingles? What do you need? Let me know, and you can do that at Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast page on Facebook, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could, uh, no, actually, just stay indoors and email me. Please just stay indoors and email me. Thanks. <laughs>
And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Uh, thank you for listening, despite all of this that's going on. And of course, because you've listened all the way to the end, because you're part of Team Finale, hmm, no, sorry, uh, Team Pack It In. No, that's, that's not right either. Anyway, because you're here, here, as promised, is your reward. Some top hot political gas. Uh, default computer avatar Andy Burnham was culture secretary during the last pandemic in the UK, swine flu, and he lived up to his name during that by flaming 6,000 tonnes of pygmy in an alcove in the Peak District to single-handedly fight the virus. That's why he's called Andy Burnham. That's it, that's why. Or did he, is it? We'll never know. We'll never know if that is true, but there's definitely a reason that they call him Andy Burnham. Uh, it might be because it's his name. Or is it? Is it his name? Or is it a nickname? Anyway, there's your hot political gossip for this week. You're welcome. And if you enjoyed that or hated it so much that it made you feel more alive than you felt in years, then please do recommend this show to others. Review it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your pods from. And please do donate to the Kofi or Patreon sites because I've got nothing until the world is all fixed. Thanks, as always, to Acast, my brother, the last skeptic for music things, Cat Day for all the linear liner notes, and Mushy Bees for all art things too. Uh, this will be back next week when we'll replace this show with a new ASMR podcast of sounds that you used to hear outside before the lockdown, such as pub fights, drug deals at the end of your street, and various shades of road rage from beeping of horns to wanker. Bye. This week's show is sponsored by Boris Johnson's stay-at-home advice. He left too, and look at the fucking state he's in. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.